Beautiful harvest. Before we get started in God's Word here, I just want to say thank you to you for your sacrificial giving with our mid-year campaign that we did this year. I'm, I'm just going to totally out on the table. I never thought we would get that much. Um, shows you how incredible of a faith-believing guy I am, huh? Um, I just realized the sacrifice that goes in in people giving, and uh, I'm just stunned by you guys all the time, all the time. When we had set out a goal of 200000 I just, I'm like, Lord, I have no idea. And the fact that we're in the 160s, I'm just thrilled to pieces. Thank you. Thank you for that. We're right now in the move of some $370,000 worth of advancements and things. And uh, uh, the other we were able to take out of our present budget and uh, what we've been able to store up and by God's goodness. And um, thank you. I just, I want you to hear from me. I'm just one other guy, but... I want you to hear from me. Thank you. So thank you. Okay? All right. Um, hey, we are in, as Pastor Nick just mentioned, we are in the last day of um, a series through one of the most preached books of the Bible, um, the book of Judges, uh, one of the most well-known books of the Bible that everybody just probably takes your family there for devotions uh, before dinner. And Oh... It's the last Sunday in the book of Judges. <laughs> I'm thrilled about it. <laughs> Absolutely. That's okay to be there. That's, uh, uh, so what we're going to do here is we want to have us just take a few here and have us actually look back. Uh, it's kind of the final day of a journey. Oftentimes that's a great time just to take a look back before we finish it out. And, and uh, I don't know if you know this or not or if you remember this or not, but we've actually been on a purposefully designed one-and-a-half-year movement of series in books of the Bible focusing on who Jesus Christ is. That that has been a focus that started in February of 2014 when we moved into this facility. On the second Sunday that we were in this building, uh, I wanted to start a series that would move us into making sure we understand that in God's blessing of being able to be in a place like this, a sending-based place like this, that we keep the focus on the center of the target. And the center of the target is Jesus Christ. It's not a building. It's not we haven't arrived. It's the center of the target is Jesus Christ and who he is. And so we began what's now been a year-and-a-half journey. And we started out with that by going into the book of Colossians. And so we spent that uh, first period of time in the book of Colossians talking about Jesus Christ supreme. I mean, Colossians is a tremendous book to lay a foundation on who Jesus Christ is, and uh, he is supreme. There is no one else like him. Colossians chapter 1, he is the one who has created all things, above all things, all things are for him, uh, all of that. Now, coming out of that series, I didn't want to leave things in kind of a theological, uh, philosophical framework of ideas that Colossians can contain. It's, it's theology, and, and I didn't want to leave it in just the fuzzy zone there. We wanted to put some flesh to it. So what we did is we went from Colossians then to the Gospel of Mark. And it's like, let's see the supreme one who came, the second person of the Trinity, who came incarnate in the flesh to go to the cross, rise from the dead, and ascend to the the right hand of the Father. We want to see that one. And so the one of Colossians, the supreme one, we saw in the Gospel of Mark, and it was like, be amazed, be amazed, absolutely be amazed by who he is. But, but we didn't want to leave it there because when, uh, when Christ ascended into heaven, he said he was coming back. Plus, on top of that, I think that there's a, a common uh, misnomer in our thinking at times to where when we think of Jesus, we see as back in that Mark series I, I would talk about, he's, you know, too often we think of him as the hippie sandaled preacher dude kind of walking around and, and know this, that is not who he is today. He is Revelation chapter 1. He is the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ. Yes, he came, but now today, understand, the one who came, the one who is supreme, is also the one of Revelation chapter 1, when the apostle John saw him, fell down before him, thinking he's going to die because he's so supreme, so amazing, so over-the-top, crazy, awesome God. And we went to the book of Revelation. That was a light study. And uh, we spent our time in there, and what a journey. Remember that? We loaded the bus. We headed for the land of Revelation, and Revelation chapter 1, it is about Jesus Christ. He is the source and the subject of the book. 
far too often the book is looked at as like a timeline thing. No, no, no. It's not first and foremost about a timeline. It's first and foremost about Jesus Christ and understanding who he is. And the supreme one that came and is now the Revelation chapter 1 has all of the future. He's got it taken care of. And so we saw all that, and it's just crazy. Remember all those amazing sights that we saw in that? I mean, crazy. It's heavy. It was hard. Mind-bending. It's marvelous. And uh, after going through that, at the end of that series, we, we brought those truths back. What do I mean by that? We brought those truths back to chapters 2 and 3 because that's the way the book is intended. The book is intended talking to seven local churches in that area, and it's basically saying, listen, in light of what's coming, in light of this information that I'm telling you about, it should change how you live today. Listen, friends, the book of Revelation is not just information about the future. The book of Revelation is about information about the future that matters today. It changes how we think, how we comprehend. Know this, all of the craziness that's going on in our world today the supreme one of Colossians got it in control. Oh, the one that came in the Gospel of Mark, that same one who rose from the dead and ascended to the Father and the one over Revelation. He's got it all figured out. Chill out. <laughs> Chill out. He's got it. And yet in that study, as we were going through that and bringing that back to God's people to live in this present war zone, we kind of saw three calls out of that. And those three calls were see Jesus, see the war, see the victory. See Jesus, see who he is. Oh, friends, see who he is. And then it was seeing the war, the reality of Revelation chapter 12 telling us about what's going on. Listen, this is, we don't live in Disney World. We live in a spiritual war zone. That's the reality of what's going on. And too often, I don't think we understand that. And we live in a war. And in that war, know this, victory is coming. And knowing that victory is coming makes all the difference living in the present war zone. Because if victory is not coming, where's the hope? Where's the hope? Well, so we went through Revelation and Colossians and Mark, and, and seeing that, we kind of came out of Revelation and kind of saying, but we're residing in this present war zone of redemptive history. Let's just ask the question, so what should we be like? What should we be living like in this present war zone? And we jumped into a five-week series that the staff led, and uh, through that and took us through that on we are. You know, these are the things that we are. These are kind of stakes in the ground that we want to drive in and, and say that we are not, we have not accomplished these, but we are pursuing these unashamed worship of Jesus Christ here and outside our walls. We want to be those kind of people, unashamed adoration of who Jesus is because we see him. We also want to be a people that are unapologetic in our proclamation of Christ in here and out of here. Hey, Jesus loves you. We want to be unashamed about that. And in it, uh, unafraid. Unafraid of our witness of Christ in and out of here. And we want to be a people about unrestrained love. Unrestrained love for Christ. Unrestrained love for one another. And unrestrained love for those who are outside of our walls. Who don't know Christ. And the other churches as well. And also, we want to be a people in unceasing prayer. We want to be a people growing in prayer. Man, that's a tough one, isn't it? But know this. The supreme one that came and is now the, revel the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ, know this. He's the one who intercedes for us in our prayers. He is the one who brings it to the Father. Not us wimpy selves. He does. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. So we want to be that. Well, then we came out of that going, hey, if, if we want to be these, question, what does it look like when God's people are not those. And so we went to the happy land of Judges. And we went through and, and saw in the book of Judges a 350-year period of time when God's people were not acting like those five things. And it's ugly. And it's hard and it's heavy and it's sad. Uh, Judges was dark. Judges was dark. It's kind of the book, I think, that God includes in His Word just to declare this. Don't be like that. Hey, my people, don't be like that. 
but it is really helpful sometimes just to be able to have that down. What does it look like when God's people are not who that they say that they are? And, and it's a motivating thing for us. Let's not be that, right? Let's not be that. Let's pursue for more on what the Lord would have for us. So we're wrapping up this book and seeing that. And actually, this was intended a while ago to be kind of the end of this whole movement of thought from when we first moved into the building. But, but I can't end so sad. I just can't end so downer on the book of Judges. Seriously, end the whole thing on Judges like what not to be? No, 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 no. I need some happy time. And uh, I'm just going to be totally frank with you. What's coming here uh, up is, honestly, it's probably more about me than about you. Um, I need some happiness because uh, Revelation was heavy and hard. And uh, Judges is dark. And life's been dark. And I'm ready for something out of that. And I need it, and I think we need it. So what we're going to be doing here is next Sunday, Kent Shaw is going to be coming and come here. Kent's one of my heroes, um, truly, I mean that. One of my personal heroes had a huge impact in my life. Please be here next Sunday. Please be here for him. You will be blessed. The following Sunday, Labor Day weekend, we're going to be kind of just taking one Sunday up and laboring for the gospel together. And that's also going to be a time where we're going to kind of uh, bring uh, Pastor Rick in and have a, kind of a bit of an installation service time in that as well for him. And then after that, what we're going to do is we're going to be uh, spending a September and October talking about living like he is. What does it look like to live like he is? Let's not finish with what it should look like. Let's finish with what it should look like. So what we're going to do is we're going to go in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're just going to grab various times when God's people lived like he is, who he is, the supreme one. And, and so it's going to be anywhere from times where we may be going to David and Job and Noah, and we may be going to Peter, and I haven't got it all worked out yet, but... Uh, Things like, what does it look like when life doesn't make sense? What does living like he is look like when life is mundane? What does living like he is when I mess up? What does it look like he is when trials overwhelm or when I'm afraid or when I see victory? So I'm really looking forward to it, and uh, we're going to be happy. <laughs> Are we? <laughs> okay. Today's finishing the book of Judges. Let's get on with it. And actually, I'm going to ask you not to turn to the book of Judges, but if you see in your sermon notes, I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. I think you'll see why we're in Psalm 106 here in a little while. Um, hey, friends, uh, living like Jesus is who he is is not about muscling up more. Let me say that again. I think too often we can come across, I can come across, we can come across together sometimes like it's, come on, put out more. You know, buck it up and work harder. Be more disciplined. Um, I think as time's going on, I'm learning more and more that maybe it's less of that and more of just seeing who he is. Because the grace of the Lord is not an excusing thing. It's not like, oh, well then, hey, let's do whatever we want because it's grace, grace, grace all around. The grace of the Lord is a drawing. When we come to the place where we see the grace of God and who He is, it draws us in. It pulls us into that. And, and, and we're going to be going there here in the coming months. And yet Psalm 106 is kind of one of these books that just from the heart of a psalmist. When you think of the psalms, you think someone just being transparent, laying out their soul right in front and laying out reality. No, no playing around. No, no gimmicks. No making stories up. Let's just get at it and see the reality of it. And Psalm 106 goes through it and basically kind of gives us eight stanzas of you, we are broken, broken, broken. Eight stanzas of we are broken, followed by the closing stanza of he is grace. Hey friends, in spite of what you have done, in spite of where you are at, in spite of the heaviness on your soul right now or the darkness in your life or the regrets that you have, know this, he loves you and he desires to pour his grace out upon you. So Lord, we enter with that. Show us more of you. 
we're going to see some of the darkness of who we are. But I, this time I am telling the end of the story. The darkness shows the brightness of you. And if we don't understand how dark we really are at the core of who we are, we really are not going to understand the brightness of who you are. So help us hang in here for a little bit for the purpose of seeing the supreme one who came, rose again, ascended at the right hand of the Father and is coming back. We don't want to be like God's people and judges, Lord. And I think the core to not being that is to see who you are. Make this a sweet time for us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's move. Psalm 106. Psalm 106. Uh, let me read the first three verses. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. For his steadfast, his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all of his praise? Blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. I would say this in our revelation terminology that he starts out saying like this. Man, I'm, I, see the Lord. See the Lord and pr give praise to the Lord. See the Lord. Look, look at verses 4 and 5. I think here we're going to see him now uh, in our revelation terminology talk about the victory. Uh, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. He's talking about a future thing that has impact now. Remember me, O Lord, when you show your favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with, the inher with your inheritance. It's this idea of see the victory. Hey, friends, this crazy world that we live in, it's all going somewhere. And ultimately, if you are in Christ, it's going somewhere cool. It's going somewhere cool. Victory's coming, and that matters today. Now let's read verse 6, the war. The psalmist says, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. <laughs> hey, Doug, where's the happiness? <laughs> Here, here's the deal. Um, he's true. He's honest. He's true. That's the reality. And notice, by the way, he's not just saying those saps back then or some other people. He's saying both we and them. We and our fathers. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3 talks about no one is righteous. No, not one. There is not one person outside of Jesus Christ that has ever lived righteously. All are fallen, all are wicked at the core. And I'm sorry to say this, but that's me, and that's you. But, but here's the deal where it's like, uh, Doug, you're bumming me, but, but it's the kind of thing to where it's like, listen, it's, it's praying, it's, it's, if we don't see that, we won't see him. How, how, how much you understand the brokenness of ourselves uh, versus uh, will, will be correlate perfectly with how we are able to see the grandness of who he is. If we do not see ourselves rightly, we will not see him rightly. And so in it here, the psalmist starts out and saying, listen, we've all sinned, we've all committed iniquity, we have all done wickedness, that is for sure, right? Um, it's sad, but it's true. It's almost like, amen to that? Amen. Oh, by the way, if you're starting to think, well, I came to Christ and I've been covered by the blood of Christ, true. But know this, under the covering is still you. Until we come and see the Lord, we are still waging a war with sin. And so, yes, before the Father, we are covered by the blood. But the reality is, is that we are people who even we are bent towards sin. We have a tenacious brokenness about it. Judges is not about unsaved people. Judges is about God's people. And in it, realizing the psalmist is writing about him, not others. He's writing about God's people in this. And so, how do we see this? Well, what we have is eight stanzas here. And we're going to move through these here. 
uh, in these eight stanzas, and they tell about eight different instances that are confirming what the psalmist just said in verse 6, all right? So let's kind of grab these uh, uh, eight stanzas here, and they're kind of not fun, but they're needed to be seen and sung so that we can see and sung the last one. All right, here we go. Number one, rebelling in Egypt. What the author does is he goes all the way back to the time of Egypt through the time of the judges. The eighth stanza is about the time of the judges that we've just studied through. So it's about a 400-year period of time, and he goes back to that. Let me read verse 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. So after 400 years of slavery, uh, God miraculously shows himself uh, through the 10 plagues as well as through having his people come out of Egypt. And by the way, we've all seen the movie. I'm talking about the older one. I think that's even better. But the timeline isn't all correct. We kind of get the image. It's like they walked out of Egypt and out of their slave huts, and then they, like that day, they crossed the Red Sea. That's not the way it worked. There was some time in that process, and yet in that time, God gave a cloud. God gave a pillar of fire at night to move God's people. I mean, can you imagine your slaves? All you know is slavery. And generation after generation after generation, and then God shows up through the plagues and these crazy things, and God just shows this wonderful awesomeness, and then he allows you to go out. You never in your life thought that would have happened, and then there's this cloud and this pillar of fire. I just love all that stuff, and it's going, and they're not at the Red Sea yet. Uh, they're about Exodus 14, and, and what happens is God's people turn around and they look back and, and they see Pharaoh army, Pharaoh's army coming after them. And you need to understand, when God's people came out of, uh, of, of Egypt, they didn't have Uzis or, or, or missile launchers or various, they didn't have anything. And, but the guys who did have the Uzis and the missile launchers and all that kind of stuff were coming behind them, and so what happened, they got scared. And they got scared, and the text tells us in Exodus that what happened was is that God's people looked back, and they saw the mighty military coming after them, and they're thinking, we're going to die. So what do they do? What do God's people do? They, they go to the leader, and they chew him out. Um, not here. And, uh, and they go to Moses, and they go to Moses, and they tell him, why did you take us out of Egypt? We're going to die. And Moses, right at that point in time, is not enjoying his leadership role. Um, but look what the text tells us that we just read. That was a situation, and I can understand that. I can understand being afraid. I can maybe even imagine being in that situation and thinking we're going to die now. This is how it's going to end. But, but look what the text tells us, two things. Verse 7, they did not consider his wondrous works. In the moment, they forgot to remember who the Lord was. They forgot to consider his works. And all his works of the plagues, the works of the cloud, the work of the fire, the work of taking out, they forgot that. And in the moment of that, that all disappeared. And also in verse 7 it says, they did not remember, I love this, the abundance of your steadfast love. They did not consider. They did not remember. In times of fear. That never happened to us, would it? No, we get that. End of verse 7, but they rebelled by the sea. Friends, that's what tenaciously broken people do. When tenaciously broken people like us, when you forget to consider what the Lord's works have been, and we forget to remember his steadfast love, tenaciously broken people end up going south with the Lord. That's who we are. That's by nature of who we are. These are God's people, by the way. Verse 8, yet, yet he saved them. At what point in time in, in God's redemptive history plan is God just going to go, done with you? Well, he kind of did that with Noah, but no, no, he didn't do that with Noah because he kept Noah. Yet he saved them. He just had been doing a mighty work with them, and, and, and they, they just get all honked off, and um, yet he saved them for his name's sake, not because of who they are, but because of who he is. 
that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe, redeemed them from the power of the enemy, and the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. I like this verse 12. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. (laughs) That's cool. Rebelling in Egypt. Another example, lusting in the wilderness, stanza 2. Verse 13, but they soon forgot his works. Ugh, those saps. Mm. I can do that, can't you? But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness. They, they, they were not wanting Chinese delivery. That's not what that's saying. Um, <laughs> and they put God to the test in the desert. So we have one more illustration. So God's people cross the Red Sea, and uh, they get on the other side, Exodus 15 and following. Then they start complaining for water and food. Numbers 11 tells us, then they started complaining for meat. And, and it's kind of like, you know, we're thirsty. And, and so God gives them water. And, and now we want something to eat. So God gives them uh, cornflakes. And, and then it's like, now we want some meat. And so God gives them some bacon. No, it wouldn't be bacon back then. God gives them some, something else for them, some meat for them in it. And, and so in the process of it, I, I'm just pointing this out. They're complaining, and yet the Lord is still loving on them. Three things uh, here we're told that they do are wrong. They forgot his works. And by the way, the text is making sure that we understand they soon forgot his works. Short memories, don't we? And then secondly, they did not wait for his counsel. I'm just not going to go into They rushed ahead with some, some things going on, and they didn't wait for the Lord. And then the third thing, the wanton craving thing. Let's go with this uh, King James Version. I actually really like that. It says, they lusted exceedingly. Kind of gives the, it's not just that they lusted, but the Hebrew carries it exceedingly so. And it's not sexual lust. This is talking about, they just wanted more. Uh, um, being out wasn't enough. Now they wanted water. Not, not, now they wanted manna. And, and now they want some meat. And uh, they, they just were that type of people. Um, like us. Like us. And the result of all of that is that they ended up putting God to the test. But look at verse 15. He gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. There's a couple things that are behind that, but um, you may say, well, that's not much grace. No, actually it was. Because God's grace at times puts things in our way for us to learn and to protect. I'll even just, the example of the manna. You know, here God creates this manna that falls every morning and they go and they gather it. And, and yet God is the physics scientist, PhD par excellence. And in it he designs this manna that you can't keep it for more than two days because you have to trust him that the next day he'll bring it back. So every day is learning to trust the Lord. But, 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 but then the great physics par excellence one uh, um, gets to the weekend, and, and then he says, no, on Saturday, uh, get it Saturday or however you want to, days you want to work it in our terms, and get it Saturday, and so it'll carry over into Sunday. So the stuff that melts in one day now holds over for two days. But, but, you, but if it, what's God doing? Making it hard on his people? No. He's helping them. He's helping them to understand what it looks like to trust in him every day. And then when it gets to the weekend and the Sabbath time, God's so good enough, he's like, listen, I want for you to have a rest time. And so God even redesigns the manna that part of the week so that it lasts. He's loving them. He's helping them in all of it. God's just so cool in spite of ourselves. Well, then we get to the next one. Um, Envying Moses and Aaron. Uh, Verse 16. Basically, tells us that the men in the camp become jealous of Moses and Aaron. In other words, they're not satisfied. They're not content with what the Lord has given them. They wanted something more. This is referencing back to Numbers chapter 16. 
In number 16, Korah was a Levite. Remember Judges? Last two times in the and, and the core, two core characters are Levites, and they're kind of the spiritual leaders of the day. Well, he was a Levite in that day, and God had given them the responsibility of carrying the tabernacle. And so when they would move the tabernacle, which was this was taking place, they would hoist it up, and they would have the Levites would carry the poles and the tent and the golden things and all these things, and the Levites would carry all this, and, and as time was going on, what started happening was Korah started thinking, I'm just, I'm just like the beacon's moving man, what's this deal with this kind of a thing? Um, uh, uh, I want to be involved in doing what Moses and Aaron do, and I want to lead the priestly duties of the sacrifices in front of everyone. So Korah, along with 250 others, come together, go up to Moses and Aaron, and it's, like, it's kind of like, listen, you, you guys are so, so self-righteous and so snotty and snooty that it's like you only allow you to do that, and we want to do that. And um, they're not very satisfied with, with what, by the way, the Lord had called them to do. And what the Lord had given them to do, while in certain ways was very mundane, was really a very special thing to do. But it wasn't enough, and they weren't content. So verse 17, so the Lord had something to say about that. The earth opened up and swallowed up Dothan and covered the company of Ibrium, and fire also broke out in their company. Flame burned up the wicked, and you're like, whoa, well, there's no grace in there. No, actually there is. I don't have time to go into this one thought, but we, we so often think that death is like the end of everything. And that's just such short-sighted thinking. One, the Lord's taking care of the whole situation with these. But in the text uh, of Numbers, it tells us in Numbers 16.38 that the Lord did this, that it would be a sign for his people. The Lord's not doing things because he's so quickly irritable and sick of you and I. He's doing these things, even sometimes harsh things, ultimately for the purpose of grabbing our attention and helping us see who he is, actually to help us. And even this situation was that. Well, then we get to the next stanza, and it's about worshiping a calf, and most of us know about this. Uh, we're in uh, verse 19. It says, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. And they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So what did they do? We're told three things here. They made a metal image of a calf, worshipping it. That's so Egyptian. That means that's so what they were used to growing up all their life. And now they're out and it's like, we want to see God. This invisible God thing, we're just not behind this. We want to see a God, so let's make one. And so they did. And so they made it an image, but they also exchanged the glory of God. And then third, they forgot their deliverer. By the way, who had done great things in Egypt, the text tells us. Who had done wondrous works and who had done awesome deeds. But in spite of all that, verse 23, therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. What's talking about? Well, well God, was, uh, God does things to give us pictures of stuff. Uh, so breach, Moses stood in the breach. Back in the day, a town would have a wall all the way around the town to protect it. And so if there would ever in war become a crack in the wall or a broken spot in the wall, they would put a soldier in the breach. And that soldier's job was to act as the wall to protect the people. And so here in the text, it's talking back when God was like, I I'm done with this. By the way, uh, God was not going to crush everyone. It wasn't because Moses was so awesome. God is teaching us something here. In this whole process, of in God's anger for what takes place, Moses stands in the breach and Moses is like, stop, Lord. No, 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 Lord, don't crush your people. Don't crush your people. And the Lord relents in that. The Lord was always going to relent. But he puts a wonderful picture, by the way, a picture that would be coming later on of one who stood in the breach for us. And Moses stands there and, and in other words, takes it and, and uh, the Lord's mercy and grace is shown. He relents. Next stanza. Despising the promised land, verse 24. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. And they murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. 
So instead instead of then trusting God to give them the promised land, uh, God's people complain. Uh, We'd never do that. And they ask Moses to appoint a committee. Now there's a smart thing to do. You know, when you ever wonder what to do, appoint a committee because committees are awesome. And so he appoints a committee together of 12, and he sends the 12 in. By the way, God, a committee, had already told them he had the whole land scoped out, but that wasn't enough. You see, they didn't need more facts. They needed more faith in it. And so what they did is they sent the 12 spies in. Ten of, when they come back, 10 of them go, they're giants, they're huge. There's no way we can do this. There's no way we can win. And the other two were like, um, actually, I think God's bigger than this. And anyway, God dealt with the whole situation. And one more time, They're unfaithful again. They had no faith. They grumbled. They did not obey. By the way, friends, if you're sitting there right now and you're thinking this is irrelevant to me, I'm just going to tell you honestly, first service, I had a moment. They grumbled. Straight up with you. That's been some of me lately. Wrestling with through, through some things. I'm just grumbling before the Lord. This is so us. This is so us. I only say that just to make it real. Okay? This is us. This is who we are. But it doesn't stop there. It's number six. Uh, the sixth stanza, aligning with Baal. Aligning with Baal. Uh, verse 28. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. By the way, this is God's people. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas, one of the priests, stood up, intervened, kind of like the Moses thing, and the plague was stayed, and that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. This is coming out of Numbers 95, when the people went and they ate with the Moabites, and, 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 they, and they worshipped the Moabite gods, and, and in it we're told here that they participated in this kind of worship, and we're told here that they provoked the Lord. And we come to the seventh stanza, unhallowing words, because it's not just with every people, it's also with the leaders, by the way. Look at verse 32. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. This is out of Numbers 20. By the way, it's really interesting. Numbers 20, verse 1, starts out with Miriam died. It's intriguing how the text moves. Miriam died. Who's Miriam? Miriam is Moses' oldest sister. Oh, by the way, who's the one when Moses was put in the basket and put out into the river as a little baby Mo? Who is the one who walked along the riverbank to find out that he ended up in Pharaoh's daughters? Oh, that was her, and she just died. And it's really interesting. The text moves along and says she died. And, And then what happened? She died, and we're told that God's people are gathering against Moses and Aaron complaining. It's like his big sister dies, and God's people are complaining down his shoulder. And there's no water, so they go before the Lord. The Lord tells them to assemble the people together, and, and maybe because of like his sister dying and the whole situation, Moses is not in a happy mood. And so God tells him that what you're to do is gather the people at a site and speak to a rock and it'll give water. Man, I want to do that. Wouldn't that be cool? It's just, uh, anyway, that's me. And so you guys speak to the rock. But what happens? Moses goes to the rock and in it, and in the text and numbers, he says to the people, because you did not believe me, uh, I'm sorry, wrong one, uh, hear now you rebels. <laughs> that's winsome. Hear now, you rebels, shall we, by the way, he's referring to Moses and Aaron, shall we bring water for you, saps? That's not in there, but for you out of the rock? And then he takes his staff and hits it twice. Bam, bam. And yet water comes. By the way, grace of God that that happened. And God afterwards tells Moses, Moses, come here. We've got to have a little chit-chat. And God talks to him in, in uh, uh, Numbers 20. God says, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy or hallowed in the eyes of the people, you will not enter the promised land. Moses was fed up, and it was all about him in the moment. And he lost the moment to bring the glory to the Lord. Boy, I get that, right? You get that, right? Yeah, 
That's us as well, unhallowing words. And then the last one. This is pretty brutal, but here it is out of Judges, because this is where we were at, playing the whore. That's what the text tells us. Let me read this, verse 34. Talking about the period during the time of the Judges. They did not destroy the peoples of, as the Lord commanded them to go in and conquer the promised land in the way that he asked. Verse 35, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Hey, pause. Did you see it? Did you, did, did you just get what was said? God's people. God's people. We're taking their sons and their daughters and sacrificing them, killing them to an idol. How far does it go for God's people to get to that place? That somehow that's acceptable. That somehow that makes sense. That somehow in their mind, that taking your son, your daughter, putting them on an altar and killing them and burning them somehow is pleasing to the Lord. What's gone on that it's gotten that far? That's how bad it was in the times of the judges. Verse 38, they poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts, and they played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nation, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Verse 46, he caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. God's people didn't do what he had asked for hundreds of years. They mixed with the nations. They served idols. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They became unclean, summarized. They played the whore in their deeds. By the way, I do need to pause on that just for a second. They played the whore. You see, when this design of love is not good enough, you go looking other places. That, that's, that's the idea of what it's talking about. That's the idea of God's people have the real deal. They have the real relationship, the ultimate relationship right here going on. And God, over decades and centuries and millennia, have been, has been faithful to his people. And they have the real deal here. And yet, somehow, that real deal isn't enough. We've got to go over and grab it over here and whore ourselves. Boy, when you put in that terminology, it doesn't sound so nice, does it? But know this, we get that, don't we? When this doesn't become enough, when this doesn't become lovely enough, fulfilling enough, satisfying enough, when this relationship with our God does not become enough, and we think that the things of this world, the stupid things of this world, like money and fake sex and relationships that we think are going to give us the satisfaction that only this can give, we are whoring ourselves. And by the way, we all do it. I play the whore. I hate to say this, but so do you. When we understand what's being talked about. Doug, you are so discouraging me again. Let's pause here. Look at the screens. The reason I've done it this way is I kind of wanted to put the data up on the screens for us to see ourselves. Because that's us. Rebelling, lusting, envying, worshiping a calf, despising, aligning, unhallowing, um, playing the whore. That's us. Oh, by the way, that's not all. Not considering, not remembering, forgetting not waiting for, lusting exceedingly after, putting God to the test, becoming jealous, made it, making an image, exchanging the glory, forgot their, del- their deliverer, had no faith, grumbled, did not obey, participated in, provoked the Lord. By the way, that is us. Doug, you know you're really depressing me. When you see the real you and me, get a load of this. 
the final stanza, verse 44. Nevertheless, underline that, circle that, highlight that. Why? Because it means in spite of. Hey, it's this way. All this, in spite of that. In spite of all of that, he looked upon their distress. In spite of all that, he heard their cry. In spite of all that, he remembered his covenant. Oh, by the way, it's not about remembering how great they are. It's remembering who he is because he knows this is who we are. And if it's all about you and me trying to earn our favor before God, we're doomed because you can't. And this proves it. But it's about when God remembering who he is and his covenant. And nevertheless, he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Four things here. Nevertheless, he is looking upon. Nevertheless, he is looking upon. At what point in time is God just going to see all of this stuff and go, I'm turning my eyes away, I'm tired and sick of this? Not yet. Not yet. God is looking upon. Hey, friends. He knows what's going on in the world. He knows what's going on in America. He knows what's going on in politics. He knows what's going on in your school. He knows what's going on at work. He knows what's going on in your life. And that is not said to be like, therefore, be very afraid. Hey, if you are in Christ, be very encouraged. He, he knows. He sees it. No, but Doug, you don't understand what I've done. He's got to turn his face. No, 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 no. He is looking upon those people. He can look upon you and I. His eyes are engaged. Secondly, nevertheless, he is hearing their cry. Why are we so proud that we just can't even grab a hold of this thing of our brokenness. Why are we that proud in our marriages that we can't admit that we've done wrong? Why are so we so proud as parents that we can't tell our kids we did wrong? Why are kids so proud that they can't tell their parents they did wrong? Why are we so proud that we can't tell the Lord the reality of who we are? Listen, the scriptures tell us this. He hears broken people. And if you have the idea of God as someone who's just like, I am so freaking tired of you, I just lovingly say, stop it. Because that's not what he's thinking. He loves hearing from you. The Lord loves broken people. Third, remember, nevertheless, he is remembering his covenant. Friends, it's not about what you do. It's about who he is. We can't come to Christ by our works. And we don't remain in Christ by our works. It's grace entering, and it's grace remaining. But we keep trying to earn his love. What if we could just stop that? And fourth, nevertheless, he is relenting. In other words, he's relenting according to the abundance of his steadfast love. His steadfast love. If nothing else today, I want to say this to you. He loves you. But Doug, I'm so broken. He loves you. But Doug, you don't know what I've done. No, I'm telling you this word, God's word, says he loves you. Whatever you have done, he loves you. 
In John 10, you are not held by who you are. You are held by him wrapped around by the Father. Just imagine, just imagine if we could get away from the whole works thinking and see the grace reality. How drawing that is. How pulling that is. How motivating that is. How hopeful that is. Nevertheless, nevertheless. For the person in Christ, the tenacity of your brokenness is trumped by the tenacity of His grace. Amen. Your brokenness cannot outdo His grace. Never, never, never. For the person without Christ, I lovingly just want to say, you're in trouble. Because we're all broken. We're all broken, and without having the grace of Christ covering, we're in trouble before the Father. And for that, it's come to Christ. Come to Christ. In fact, that's how the book ends, verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God, If you've not been redeemed in Christ, if you've not just come to that point where it's receiving Christ as your Savior and entering into covenant relationship with Him, it's time. See your sin. See His grace. As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. If you're not sure what that's about, talk with someone. Come and talk. May I remind you who are saved in Christ, you are saved in Christ, not by you. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, praise the Lord. Lord, we finish our time here with doing just that, with singing together, giving thanks unto you. But God, I, I, I pray that what we've just talked about, and I pray that this psalm would, would be a driving force in our thinking for the week. I'm not putting out on the table today that there's a specific action that we need to do or a specific task that needs to be had. If anything, Lord, I'm kind of saying for us today is the challenge of, let, listen, friends, let's step back and let's stop trying so hard. And let's see who He is. Let's not stop keep trying to be the ones that repair our brokenness. We're instead to be the ones who see it and admit it and lay ourselves before the one who mends, who covers, who gathers, who knows his own by name. Lord, I pray that we would go out this week with a right thinking of who you are that the book of Judges would be that echo in the back of our minds just reminding us, oh God, we don't want to be that. We want to be something different. And we would turn our eyes from the darkness of Judges, if you will, and we'd turn our eyes toward to who you are. Because you are the center of it all. You are the savior of it all. You are the sustainer of it all. And I'm really glad you are. And so we sing and we declare who you are in Christ's name. Amen.